Hello everybody and welcome to WTS 238, the award winning What's a Story podcast, which is available everywhere, lads. Leave the review if you don't mind, please, and thank you, God bless. My name is Danny Murray. And I'm Graham Merrigan, and Graham Merrigan and Danny Murray are very happy with our new haircuts that we got this week. I think the both of us, the last time we got our haircut was probably around Christmas week. Mine was certainly on Christmas Eve. Mine, Danny, yeah. you look great. I look great. This has been What's a Story, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Money Dog. <laughs> You're very excited. Danny, I love getting the haircut. I love seeing the hair come off the razor. I got a 0.5 back in sides, bit off the top, bit off the fringe. Mm-hmm. And as my dad usually says, oh, you were getting your hair cut. Shut up. God oh, bless him. Yeah, tell you what, the old jokes are the best jokes, aren't they, Mark American? Um, yeah, man, I was delighted, delighted to get in to, to get my hair cut. Um, I, I personally went for a one, a nice fade with a one. Uh, around the back and sides. I've got used to a bit of length on the top of my head, so I said to my old mate, Aaron, listen, just give that a trim, tidy it up for me, make me look fresh. He said, I have you. And he wasn't lying. He did have me. Look at he this. He wasn't lying. Beautiful, isn't it? I'm delighted with it. It's a post-shower haircut where it it's is. very fluffy on top. It, it is indeed, yeah. No product in there. That's just natural hold, thanks to the God-given skills of Aaron, me, me, me best man barber in Caveman Barber's Port Leash. They're opening a new shop in Kilkenny as well. Shout out to the lads. I'm well, shout out to Keith. Yeah. Shout out to Keith from Knights Barber in Dundrum Town Centre. Keith is a gentleman and has been putting my hair for about two years now. That's it. Ever since the loss of Jason Brophy to the international world, oh. we've been we've been desperately searching for decent barbers, me and you. But uh, yeah, look, look, lads, look after your barber. We, we've all, we, we never realised how much we'd missed them until they were taken away from us. So, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to get in and get the old ears lowered over the next couple of days and whatnot, Look after your barber. They're good folks, and it's been a and and that goes for all the places that are reopening. You know what I mean? It's been a struggle. So get out there and support them and help them and tell them you missed them and and smile at them under your mask. Don't take your mask off, Jesus! Don't do that. And uh, <laughs> and and tell them how appreciative you are to have them back. But now I will be. Can't wait to see a few shops now and a few places that I've missed. But, yeah, you're Look looking great, Grant. Uh, thank you. I'm looking forward to the pictures reopening, and I'm looking forward to Palace Stadium. Can I, right, can I I'm looking forward to being fully vaccinated. I, I love the pictures as much as the net. Like, I love going to the pictures and I love going to see something on the big screen, big blockbuster, big screen, all that kind of thing. I love getting me minstrels and putting them into me popcorn and acting like I'm 12, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm at a loss to understand why I'll be able to go and watch something in the pictures, but 500 people can't sit in the Aviva Stadium and watch yeah. football match. I am at still a don't know when the pictures. That. We still don't know when the pictures are going to be open, though. Was there not a thing about the pictures reopening in July? In the, no, he then went back in their words and said that. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. I, was, I, yeah. I, missed, I missed that bit. So that's my own fault then for not paying attention. But I thought, uh, I thought we'd be allowed back in the pictures. We wouldn't be allowed back in the football stadium. So it's like, that makes, you know, even, no even, the, even the RDS, the RDS, the Leinster Rugby were trying to get a trial thing. And, you know, but anyway, look, that's, that's besides the point. And we should we should be we should be progressive and we should be trialing these things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We should yeah. be trialing like 400, 500 fans at Tallis Stadium. We should be yeah. doing this at Leinster matches in the RDS. I don't see why we're not doing it. Like. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the main numbers that are coming down are the hospital and ICU numbers because nobody's getting seriously sick with the vaccination program kicking in. Yeah. So, I mean, instead of 
Minister of, he's not Minister for Sport, but Minister of Sport, uh, Jack Chambers, completely dismissing the idea of Leinster Rugby doing something in, in the RDS. It's just like, don't be dismissing it straight away. Give it a chance. Give it a shot. I mean, we've seen it two weeks ago in Liverpool where they had a full-blown rave of 5,000 people. And the results from that were, were very good. Like, Yeah, and was it in Madrid or Barcelona or something? There was a concert. That's right. Yeah, Barcelona, I think, yeah. And, um, and we all know how bad COVID was, both in the UK and in Spain. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, like, look... Like, I think we've been, on this podcast, we've been, and I think, like, a couple of people even kind of gave us a bit of stick at times for being kind of like, oh, yeah, wear your mask, is it, lads? Oh, yeah, like, you know, like, not, ah, they are, they're conspiracy theorists, gobshites. But, like, I, I think we, we tried to approach the pandemic as kind of responsibly as we could, like, but at the same time, you know, vaccines are doing what we need them to do. Everybody knows the state of play now. There's no ignorance out there as such. Let us try be responsible adults. Let us try do these yeah. things in a responsible way. Like nobody's looking to go out there and start licking each other's faces. Do you know what I mean? Exactly, because we're we're getting into a because of the reopening announcements and the timeline of reopening, you're gonna get and I'm not I'm not criticizing you, but you're gonna get people that say, you know, the way you were saying, I for the life of me can't understand how I can sit in the cinema, but five hundred people can't stay mm. in the sports hall. Like the biggest failure of, of the government last summer was doing so many contradictions like that. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where people were then saying, oh, so you're telling me you can do this and you can't do that. And I'm kind of going, who gives a fuck? Just be responsible. Just be fucking responsible. I mean, so this time around in the summer, I think they're being extra cautious because they did fail with the communication last summer. Varadkar did skip uh, stage four and stage stage five for for July and August yeah. because he got ahead of himself and and they that's why we were delayed but now we have the vaccination program so just we'll get there I I'm I'm very so, positive we'll get there and uh, and we'll we'll soon be talking about this in past tense so that's it yeah anyway stay, Danny stay, stay um, the course lads I mean your turn comes get your vaccine it'll make all the difference and you know even if you're not sure for you do it for someone else because there's people out there who need to be protected yeah don't be anti-vax um, our guest this week is TD and people before profit member Richard Boyd Barrett with special guest Doll Bell explain the Doll Bell before we go into the interview please <laughs> So, uh, Richie was joining us live from the Dahl, which is currently sitting in the convention centre. And uh, as he explains to us uh, very early on, there are a series of bells that will chime and ring uh, when the Dahl is either going into vote or it's going into debate and all that kind of thing. And it's, a, it's, it's how deputies are told, get into chamber or something is coming or, or whatever the case might be. So, you, you will hear frequently in this episode prolonged ringing of the bells lads uh, we do apologise uh, completely out of our hands completely out of Richie's hands nature of the beast you're getting to talk to one of the leading opposition uh, members of Dahl Aaron they're doing it live from uh, the, the, the Dahl on location you're going to get background noise you're getting the live experience lads you wouldn't get it elsewhere that's all I'm saying so <laughs> you know uh, people for profit TD Richard Boyd Barrett we like to welcome back and uh, uh, the return of always my number one preference vote in the area when he's going for the ball. 
Richard Boyd Barrett. How are you, Richie? Good, Graham. Delighted to be back. Uh, it, glad, you, glad you're willing to have me back. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's going to be a tough love one, okay? We're going to be giving out the money joke. Oh, Jeannie, can you hear that now? The bell has started. Yeah. Can you yeah. hear that? Yeah. yeah. So, Richie is actually in the convention centre as we're recording this. Um, and he might be called to uh, vote on some motion. So, going to be a tricky one in that if he gets called to, for some motions, he will have to, to leg it. So, bear with us. And it, it might be a bit exciting. I'll try and take you with me. Yeah. Graham and Danny. So, what is that noise? <laughs> so, what is that noise, Richie? Explain to us what that is. That, that are the bells. The bells. To say and what? Well, this particular bell is saying the door was suspended for five minutes because the minister wasn't around to come in for the next debate. You know, because there like to be multiple debates and sessions going on in here in a day. Normally, they go fairly seamlessly from one to the next, but sometimes if a minister isn't here or uh, whatever, there might be a slight delay. So that was just saying we're back in session now. It stopped oh. about... It, go, this, it goes on for long enough, doesn't it? Oh, wait till you see when the bells for the voting go. It's then, <laughs> then you're... It, your head will be really done in. Uh, it like it goes on for about three minutes, four minutes. It puts the Angelus to shame. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's bad. And what's even worse is when you're in Leinster House. If there's a different bell for committees than there is for the doll, so if the two go off at the same time, uh, it would literally fry your brain. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes. And sometimes they do a fire drill at the same time then as well. Oh, <laughs> lovely. Yeah, so Richie, what time, what time did you get out there at now to see them? It varies now because it depends. Like it currently as scheduled, if everything went exactly as it was scheduled, I could be in here till half 11 tonight. But um, right. the, I think things will go short. Some of the debates are moving a bit faster because uh, there wasn't a huge amount of interest. You know, it would be different. There's some bills that everybody is really interested in and, uh, think they're important or they're controversial and then they could drag on for ages if it's a bill that's not terribly controversial then there mightn't be as many people speaking or mm. if it, you know if it's a niche thing that there's only particular people are interested in then it can go quicker so that's what seems to be happening here tonight Right Tamir and I ask you Rich um, just keeping it local momentarily um, before we get into the nitty gritty um, I was kind of disappointed uh, and sad to see local councillor um, Hugh Lewis, who was a brilliant councillor uh, in our area and a for former People Before Profit uh, member has said he has left the party. Um, is there anything there? I've, I've talked to you personally, so um, I don't want to get into the I don't know what, what the story is there, yeah. but would you like to make a comment on that? Or? Yeah, obviously, I thought you'd ask me about it, and uh, I'm sure it's a surprise to people. Um, but uh, I know that Huey doesn't want to say much, and at this point, I would rather not say a lot. But the only thing I would say is that uh, I have not fallen out with Huey politically or personally in any way and he hasn't fallen with me politically or personally in any way uh, you know uh, I think at this point it'd probably be better not to like comment further you know yeah very well okay. 
Yes, if, if, I'd say a lot of people were probably concerned that the two years might have had a fallen out, no. but it's probably refreshing to hear no, that you haven't. Not. And yes, they're probably still aligned the same side of the politics. So, um, yeah, that's good yeah. to hear. Good, yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. And obviously, we, we wish you all the best as well with everything. But um, to, to try and yeah, keep it local, absolutely. but to try and keep it local, but kind of change gear a little bit. Uh, with restrictions lifting on one thing and the other, Richie, um, friend of the show, Keith Kelly, the man behind Jumpers for Goalposts, hopefully yeah. we'll be getting that initiative back up and running. Um, you attended a few of them. Uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you between the sticks at the next one. Yeah. <laughs> or between <laughs> the, the, between the, the jump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the jumpers. Between, yeah. between the jumpers, I should say, yeah. Yeah, leaper the keeper. Ah, yeah, but listen, Keith is, Keith is brilliant and uh, it's a, such a brilliant initiative, you know. Um, so, uh, and I think it's just taken off, hasn't it? Like, it's just yeah, gone, yeah. O- gone on o- all over the country. And, uh, like, that meant thing just so important, isn't it? And, uh, you know, it's probably always been a big thing, but people didn't want to talk about it. And there was stigma at- attached to it. You know, people having really difficult periods in their life and, you know, having a crisis, mental health crisis, but not being able to talk about it. And it's great that we're kind of getting to a point that we're beginning to acknowledge these things. And I think Keith's initiative is just brilliant in that regard. And uh, particularly like reaching out to people of my generation and his generation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, slightly older men. Or what, what, how do Mid-age we describe ourselves men, now? People in our 50s. Middle-aged, maybe. Mid-age uh, crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Sort of young middle age, I like to think. Young middle age. <laughs> so you, you'll be down at the next one then. Ah, for sure. Yeah. Now I could be hobbling around the pitch by the. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's brilliant. And Keith's a legend. And uh, yeah, let's hope we get it all back up and running real soon. Brilliant. Ricky, I just wanted to touch uh, on the death of Philip Windsor. Um, <laughs> Jesus, Merrill. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> I know. I say this, I say this as a people before profit uh, supporter yeah. and uh, a supporter of left in general. Um, I was a bit annoyed at the um, at the stuff that came out, mm. but I don't see why he's had to include Mary Lou McDonald's uh, name in, in in the poster and in, in you know. In, in as far as oh we won't be following Mary Lou McDonald's lead in in you know in her statement her statement in which she was kind for for anyone of that persuasion on the islands we we send our condolences. Um, would be fair to my part or or what was the thinking there in 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 terms of to be really post? Well, to be honest, now I had didn't have any particular involvement in that post. Uh, I mean, the good thing. I suppose these days as people before profit is a lot bigger of an organization. So, and I'm glad to say it isn't centrally controlled. I don't control it. And the TDs don't control it. We've lots of activists and those people who put out a post through the debate, I have to say after that post, um, uh, as to, you know, wasn't quite the way to put it. I think there was general consensus, consensus that the Connolly, there was, a, there was a post put up with a quote from Connolly which was about monarchs, you know, basically doing nothing for anybody ever in history. And that, yeah. uh, <clears throat> and that it was, you know, workers that had brought progress and uh, good things to, to, to society. So probably I, I was very much behind that way of doing it. You know, there was a little bit of, uh, 
uh, difference of opinion about whether precisely the way it was presented was the best way uh, to present it. But, you know, people, people, I suppose what was running behind it is uh, the fact that, you know, it, as a socialist, when you don't believe in monarchy, when you really think monarchy is, you know, it's not just an anachronism, you know, it's, it's sort of a front to any idea of democracy or absolutely in the yeah world, you know but my, my 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 feeling on it was just that when i saw it and i saw mary lou being referenced in a in a in a kind of graphic design poster officially from people for profit i my, i was just kind of of the way of why are why are they nitpicking at something when we're on the same side in as far yeah. as the opposition against Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Green Party, and it's kind yeah. of like, is that a low blow considering, like, I thought Mary Lou was right to say what she said in terms of the people of that persuasion on the island, because we do have loyalists on the island that if and when a United Ireland happens, we do have to cater for their um, thought process. I do, I and do, I know I, do, I don't believe in monarchs. I, I despair of yeah, monarchs. Yeah, I don't look, get them actually, at all. Graham. Look, I mean, I didn't actually, I didn't see that. I didn't know there was a reference to, to Mary Lou, and so I actually genuinely, and I'm not just saying, I'm not dodging a question. I didn't actually know there was a reference to Mary Lou uh, in it, because uh, I, I genuinely don't follow all the sort of memes or whatever that are put out. What I will say though, and this is without taking pot shots, and I'd like to think we don't take pot shots for the sake of it. I think there is underlying it. There's a there is a bit of a political difference about how we approach the United Ireland question, uh, which I think it is going to come into view. I mean, we're very much in favour of campaigning at the moment uh, for a border poll, for the uh, idea that, you know, now more than ever in the aftermath of Brexit and even COVID, that there is, uh, the case is strengthening for uh, United Ireland. And we're very proactively campaigning for it. And I think there's two different ideas about how we might go about achieving a united ireland and ending partition and i think this may be a difference of emphasis between us and uh, Sinn fein or mary lou i don't know i mean we have to debate it but i think it's going to become a very live debate and that is do we say the way to unite the country is to say what we need to do is sort of accommodate green and orange right um or and this is our view do we want to say we want to overcome that notion of, of tribal green and orange sort of divisions to create a different Ireland so that the United Ireland isn't just joining together green and orange, but it is actually moving beyond green and orange uh, to a socialist Ireland, a different Ireland. Uh, and that it, it, you know, it's about actually beginning to emphasize the things that bridge the gap between Catholic and Protestant. Like, for example, you know, think about COVID. We need, it's obvious in the context of COVID, if it wasn't before, we need an all Ireland health service, single tier national health service. I mean, if you, if you were in the North, why on earth would you want to be part of the two tier uh, health system down here? Right? It doesn't make, because, I mean, the national health system has been run down, but at least there is a thing called the national health system. Uh, 
uh, in the UK, fought for by working class British people, basically, uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, and it's a good thing. Why would they want to be part of a place where, you know, the Catholic Church run half our hospitals and it's a two tier system. You get different health care if you're if you can go to the Beacon than if you go to, you know, St. Michael's or the public hospital. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, I, I think we have to make the case in those terms. That's why we need to end the green-orange sectarian division, because we need to unite working people to fight for an all-Ireland national health service. Uh, and I would say the same about you know, workers' rights or whatever, that actually Catholic and Protestant workers, North and South, have an interest in ending sectarian division because workers are weaker if they're divided along religious or uh, cultural lines. So we think, actually, we need to break down that notion that there's an intrinsic, fundamental, cultural or religious division between working people, North and South, Catholic and Protestant. Uh, whereas I think some will approach it and saying, no, what we need to do is get a few unionists into government. We need to accommodate green and orange. Uh, and that's how we'll get a united Ireland. I don't think that'll work. I think you need to actually challenge sectarianism. Very good. Now, that's... Um... That's not apropos the exact post you were talking about, but I do think there's a there's a political debate underlining it. Under, Abs underlying absolutely, it. yeah, there is. There is. Um, in in terms of uh, the election last year, and talks with um, opposition parties like Sinn Fein and Social Democrats, how close were we at all um, from forming that from an F government? Yeah, uh, I think we were pretty close. I mean. We didn't get the majority, right? We didn't get a we didn't get a, a majority to make a left majority government, but uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael didn't have a majority either. That's a historic first uh, after a hundred years, you know. And that was the sort of slogan, wasn't it, during the election? Break the cycle of a hundred years of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael rule. Okay, they're still in government, but they couldn't do it. Even together, they couldn't form a majority. Like, wow, that's such a big change. Huge, when between yeah. the two of them, I had they had eighty uh, percent. So okay, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael didn't have majority, but neither did the left. And then we had people in the middle, you know, your sort of gene pool independence from Fianna, rogues from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, uh, whatever. Uh, so like we're at a crossroads in Irish political history. There's no doubt about it. And we were close. And we argued, and I, I think we were distinct actually, to be honest, from people for profit in saying it was worth trying to go for a minority left government. And we did have discussions with Sinn Féin about that. There were quite detailed discussions. We produced papers. We established quite a lot of sort of common ground as to what would be a, a minimum program, at least for such a left uh, government. But I think, first of all, we couldn't get real buy-in. The SOC Dems, they talked to us, but they really weren't up for it. Now, you can, you know, it's best to ask them why they didn't. I think they were keeping an eye open for possible arrangements with the bigger parties they might say not so you'll have to ask them that one do you know what i mean so did uh, you, you you've had more in common with Jim fain than the suck dems then i i think in terms of like there certainly was more engagement and we got the discussions were much more detailed uh as to you know what a, what the program of a left government might look like um the other people who were quite seriously engaged in it were people like thomas pringle and Catherine connolly who again i think would be you know, a bit further to the left. Labour were absolutely uninterested. And I think, you know... That's bizarre, though, isn't it, considering they're polling? 
but they very tight. They tied their covers to the mast of going of propping up the big parties, haven't they? I mean, that's that's been their history, and it's been a great, it's been a disastrous failure for them. Is to to get a surge of support, and they've got it's happened to them many times, and then take that surge of support into propping up either Fianna Fáil or either Fianna Gael, or Fianna Gael, and it's been a disaster for them. And the biggest disaster, obviously, was the last Fianna Gael uh, Labour government. I mean, we're still paying the cost for that one. Uh, housing in particular so I don't know if there's a way back for Labour to be honest uh, but it, it'll have to if there's any way back for the Labour Party they're going to have to break from that that uh, policy that they pursued consistently really for the history of the state of, of being willing to prop up either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael it's just you know a left a left agenda and Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael they don't go together they're just no. know, they're incompatible no they don't and it would be it would be ridiculous if the Social Democrats, as you kind of suggested, that they possibly might have been waiting for a bigger party to go into bed with, so to speak. Have they not seen the Green Party's experience from before or Labour Party's experience before where they're decimated? I mean, it would have been a disaster. Look, the Green Party are going to be decimated at the next election. Well, when do you think the next election will be, Richie? That's hard to know. I mean, like, I think the people would love one now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, huge numbers of people, all those people who voted for change are, are gutted, were gutted immediately that they ended with Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil back in power, courtesy of the support of the Greens. So I, I think there's a huge cohort, maybe nearly a majority, who would like an election tomorrow. Uh, but I think... Uh, the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens know that and they know that they're probably even less popular the Greens in particular as you say are going to suffer devastation so none of them really have an interest in an election because they know it's not going to go well for them yeah. uh, and that may be that sort of fear of decimation may lead them to hang in you know for longer than you might think for a weak and unpopular government uh, because they don't want to face the music uh, of their own popularity but it depends, doesn't it? It always depends on issues. I mean, the COVID crisis meant that everybody sort of put their heads down, get through this crisis, mostly focused on that. But as the, as the COVID crisis hopefully starts to recede, as we saw this week with the housing thing, just all the big issues that led people to kind of break from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have come surging back again, you know, and rightly so, because they're such serious problems. Um, so... You know, it, it, like I think there'll be tens of thousands of people on the streets over housing if it weren't for the restrictions at the moment. Uh, yeah, I think I there would have been. Yeah. I think there would have been thousands on the streets over the Debenhams thing, to be honest. Uh, uh, were it not for COVID, so that kind of people power movement could erupt at any time and take this government out. Do you think? Like, I'm just I'm curious on that one as well, uh, Richie. Just the the notion of a, of a pandemic election. Um, I, like in one sense, I'd agree. I think there is there there is a cohort of people out there who definitely would love for there to be an election in the morning. Um, but then I kind of look and the opinion polls, you kind of see little movements here and there, and you kind of see these kind of not micro movements. But in, in, from the way I'm looking at it, it seems like the government is the most unpopular government we've had in a long, long time. Um, and yet it seems like the opposition are kind of struggling to chip away at that and to, to pose that real threat and then you look across the water last week in, in, in Britain and the local elections there and the results there baffled me and I'm kind of like Jesus it, like, 
is is it an opposition thing? Is it a, some sort of weird Stockholm syndrome with with the government parties? Like, what what is at the moment that that people aren't connecting to? What's happening? <clears throat> yeah, that's a really good question, Danny. And very good. Not the, yeah, not the easiest. Why ask me some easy ones, Danny? Will you? Oh, don't worry. We'll move on to them in a bit. <laughs> yeah. It's an uh, interesting point, though, isn't it? Because you're yeah. kind of like in our own little eco chambers on, on Twitter. Yeah. And even with the kind of the left that you follow in England, you're kind of going, well, certainly not in these local elections in, in, in across the water this time around. I wasn't, I was, I was predicting a, a decimation from Labour. But mm. previously, the last general election... They need to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I was kind of going, the last general election, I was like, what the... Boris Johnson... Yeah. Sorry for interrupting anyway the question, Rich. Oh, but look, it's, it, it is an interesting question. And I mean, okay, what do I think? I, I think that, uh, okay, wh- why is Johnson managing to hang in there considering the mess he made, uh, particularly the outbreak of COVID and just the fact that he's a right-wing, you know, buffoon? Uh, yeah, complete buffoon. <laughs> how, how is he hanging in there? Well, definitely Keir Starmer is like, you know, a damp squib, a wet rag, and, you know, he's not left, right? He's, you know, he's... He, how, how can you be left and accept the knighthood? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, to me, the Corbyn thing was very exciting because for the first time, it looked like we, we had somebody who was genuinely committed to radical left politics, but Jesus, did the establishment go after him? I mean, they really went after him, and his own party went after him. And I, I suppose if you were to say, what was the mistake? The mistake of Corbyn was to believe that he could take the Labour Party with him when the Labour Party was full of Blairites, the people who'd absolutely sold their soul as, as socialists, you know. In fact, none of them actually would even describe themselves, I suspect, as socialists. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Blair had led a counter-revolution in the Labour Party. Corbyn sort of, you know, took the Blairites by surprise and was swept uh, into the leadership through really a movement of young people, a massive movement of young and working class people uh, desperately looking for an alternative. And uh, the Blairites were at sixes and sevens. So there was a sudden moment where the radical left seized the leadership of the Labour Party and there was that opportunity. But then you had a, an entire political establishment, including the Blairite kind of apparatus of the Labour Party, out to stab him in the back to destroy him. Um, yeah. And I suppose the lesson there is, yeah, you, it's hard to change the Labour Party. What actually happens is the Labour Party changes you. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that they have just lost their way as a party of the left. Uh, and I, I think that's that's why I think we need to create a genuinely radical socialist party of the working class uh, that isn't compromised by that sort of politics of just wanting to be into in power for the sake of it, um, or wanting to be part of the establishment for the sake of it. So that is the challenge, and it's not an easy challenge. I mean, Connolly, yeah. Connolly, it's Connolly's anniversary today. Connolly, the greatest socialist this country ever had. But, uh, you know, he didn't build an organization that was big enough and he paid with his life because of it. And the Irish Revolution was somewhat stillborn in terms of the great hopes and aspirations of that revolution because the left weren't strong enough, you know. And so that remains the task to build a big, radical, socialist, working class party that is made up of, of thousands and thousands of activists. It isn't just a few individuals, but is a really powerful movement on the ground.
What, why do people fear the, the label socialist? Well, there's no doubt Stalinism, you know, the, what happened in Eastern Europe, you know, the Chinese communists, you know, that all the, that has discred, that discredited the left and the, the much of the radical left wrongly, in my opinion, you know, cause our tradition was never of this view. We always had the slogan going way back, you know, to the, pre, the, the Stalinist period, we were settled precisely on the slogan, neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we didn't see Stalinism as a model. But unfortunately, a lot of the radical left in the period, really from the 1930s all the way up to the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the Workers' Party, you know, official Sinn Féin, uh, the parts of the Labour left, the Communist Party, all believed that Soviet Russia was a model of socialism. And I think that was a disastrous mistake. And of course, when that, when those what were in effect dictatorships collapsed mm. uh, in the face of a massive mobilization of the working class of those places, uh, suddenly a certain model of socialism collapsed with it. And it was discredited. Uh, but I don't, I don't think what collapsed had anything to do with the ideas of James Connolly or for that matter, Karl Marx or... Rosa Luxemburg or Engels or the real, you know, the real <clears throat> Marxist tradition. Mm. It was a bastardization of socialism using the name, but having nothing to do with the actual, the actual project of socialism. And if people think, well, how could that happen? Just think about the way, you know, we've had Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael governments who put up statues to James Connolly and James Larkin. Doesn't mean they actually believe in them. No. Sometimes they stick up the statues precisely because they want to kind of, you know, uh, what's the words? Uh, neutralize their memory. Mm. We're okay as long as they're statues, but we just don't want them. We don't want the live thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't want them. Uh, yeah, exactly. We don't want the live thing. Jesus wept. <laughs> um, you mentioned Rosa Luxemburg there. Would would you have done a lot of um kind of reading into Rosa Luxemburg as you as you were getting your feet into socialism? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't claim to be a an absolute expert, but she, Jesus, she, she was a legend, you know, German socialist. Um, one of the few, along with Connolly and Lenin and Trotsky, you know, uh, I mean, there were literally a handful of people who, in the international socialist movement at the time, which was essentially the labor, it, it had a different name then, it was called the Second International, but it was the international uh, agglomeration of labor type parties. They were all part of that. Uh, but only a handful of them came out and opposed the First World War when it broke out. They'd said before the war, we will oppose any war between the big powers. And then when the actual war broke out, most of the so-called Socialist Party supported the war. Uh, And the only people who didn't were Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, her German colleague, people like Connolly and Larkin, uh, and people like Lenin and Trotsky, you know, literally a handful of people. Uh, said this is an absolute betrayal of what we, you know, what socialism is about. Um, and Luxembourg then began to try and rebuild a genuine socialist politics in Germany and obviously was very inspired by the experience of the Russian Revolution, uh, but paid with her life because uh, it didn't succeed and uh, she was dumped in a canal, um, shot. Uh, despite a you know fantastic history, brilliant books she wrote about the role of the mass strikes in bringing about socialist change and uh, 
yeah, she was a brilliant theorist, but a brilliant activist, an incredibly courageous woman, uh, and paid for her life. But she still con con uh, continues to inspire socialists and working class activists in Germany and across the world. Uh, so her legacy, like Connolly's, you know, is still very much alive. You, you, you mentioned strikes there, Rich, and it just, it, it sparks in my brain uh, images everybody has seen recently, uh, especially on social media and whatever, of pickets outside Debenhams stores and everything else. Um, there, there is, you, you introduced a motion into the all this morning, uh, People for Profit did. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. Oh, the shit well, show, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's just disgraceful. I mean, these were workers who had worked, many of them for 20 and 30 years uh, for Debenhams, given loyal service. Um, and then one day in March, uh, they get an email just saying, you're gone. The company's liquidated, no notification. Uh, get out of the building. I mean, their belongings are still in the, those buildings. Imagine that. In the whole 400 days it was this week that they've been in, in dispute with the company after the liquidation uh, and some of their belongings and their bags and stuff. That's how, you know, contemptuous the company and the liquidators were about the treatment of these people. Uh, it's just, it was just beyond appalling <clears throat> what was done to them. And the company had obviously pre-planned this. It was a tactical liquidation. It had shifted around assets and loaded debts onto the Irish company in order to make it look as if it had no assets in order to evade, avoid paying uh, what had been an agreement between the company and the workers for statutory redundancy, which is two weeks per year of service plus two weeks, right? That was the agreement they had with the workers and all of that just reneged on uh, and this was happening while Debenhams Online was continuing to function, continuing to generate very significant uh, revenues while Debenhams in the UK uh, was still operating. Uh, but a consortium, which included Bank of Ireland, had taken over, right? So behind this, by the way, in case people didn't know, was a consortium of investors. And you now we'll get on to housing, investors who buy up companies uh, and decide how they can you know, take the assets and run and dump people. Sounds like a familiar story, isn't it? And uh, but what was great? What they didn't count on was the workers uh, not being willing to take it uh, lying down. And what what it's just? I mean, in the very dark sort of uh, period of the pandemic, and in the pretty dark situation they found themselves in, I have to say, one of the really bright spots of the last uh, year and a half has been getting to know those Debenhams workers because they are just fantastic, fantastic. Uh, people, mostly women, not all women, a few men in there, but uh, mothers and grandmothers, uh, the absolute salt of the earth, uh, dignity uh, and decency kind of embodied, do you know what I mean? And, and, and Richie, has the Taoiseach or the Taunish to met with the strikers? Oh, uh, actually, I'm not sure if the Taoiseach has. It, yeah, the Taoiseach did go down to some of the picket lines, I think, in Cork. And, and can the uh, government now, how come the government can't step in and help here? Well, th that's the point, isn't it? And we raised it repeatedly. We had three motions in the doll, as well as the bill today. We had motions in the doll. Other people brought motions in the doll in the opposition. We forced ministers to go down and talk to them and have meetings with them. But they basically just said, oh, there's nothing we can do. It's very complicated. Company law, all that. Uh, but this was all nonsense because this had happened before. It had happened with uh, 
company called Vita Cortex in Cork. It had happened with La Senza. I remember being involved in occupation out in City West, I think a decade ago, or exactly the same situation that happened. It happened with Cleary's, very similar situation. Uh, it's happened more recently now, even after Debenhams, with the Arcadia workers, that's people in Dorothy Perkins, uh, and a load of other firms that work under that Arcadia banner. Exactly the same thing has happened. So there was commitments made at the time of Cleary's they were going to change the law to give priority to collective agreements for workers and uh, redundancy uh, agreements for workers uh, and, you know, change those things, but they never did anything, never did anything. Um, and, you know, their excuse is, well, I don't know actually what their excuse is. It's complicated, it's difficult, but, my, you know, my belief is that they just don't want to do anything which frightens the horses of big business. Uh, so what do, what's your bill suggesting to change? Our bill is, is suggesting that workers go to the top of the uh, sort of priority list when it comes to uh, being creditors in the case, in terms of their redundancy agreements, right? Uh, that they go to the top of the priority list uh, so that the assets would be used uh, to, to honor their collective agreements and also that those collective agreements would become like a debt uh, they'd, be, they'd have the same status legally as a debt obligation for the company. And that, again, would make it more likely that the assets would be uh, disposed of uh, it, it, to the benefit of the workers and any collective agreements that they had around uh, redundancy. I mean, it is worth saying there's more things that need to be done. Uh, we, we couldn't get everything into the bill because you just, you know, it, drawing up bills is difficult. The government could do it easily, but we don't have the same resources. But we need... There needs to be uh, also legislation to stop companies hiding assets behind different subsidiaries. This is another thing they did. You know, like there's Debenhams Ireland, there's Debenhams Online, there's Debenhams UK, there's did you know uh, subsidiaries, right? And they use the, they shift around debts and assets and liabilities in order to cook the books, so it looks as if they have no assets. Uh, when somebody might, like the workers, might come looking for them, and that's that's also how a lot of the big corporations avoid tax. So why how, you know, why why would the government vote against your bill? Uh, because they are dancing to the tune of big business interests, and big businesses in this country would be terrified at the thought that workers would take priority over, uh, you know, for example you know, the banks that are standing behind in the consortium. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that might be owed money. Um, or particular big suppliers, maybe. Uh, you know, big corporate suppliers uh, to those companies. So, yeah, they don't, don't and, and also just generally, they don't, they don't want to, you know, the way they see it is oh, we're frightening away investment by giving workers rights. So in a choice between investors and workers, the investors always win. And when we, we move on to the housing thing, isn't that what we're having the debate about the cuckoo funds this week? You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and in actual fact, the cuckoo funds, the vulture funds, they're all going on the last 10, 12 years. Um, in terms of e-housing prices, we'll move on to that. Um, my profile, 36, wheelchair user, um, full-time job. I've Currently, no prospects of buying a house um, because single person uh, and with a disability. What, how can we make this better? And, and will it get better? How can we make that better? Not only for my profile, but there's many people like me 
who are disabled, who are wheelchair users, who are in their mid-30s, and they can't get accommodation. Yeah, just as you asked that question, the bells go. Can you hear them now? Yeah, Bang yeah. In the background. It's so annoying. So uh, Paul Murphy's just beside me. He says we have till half eight. To, to a oh, month. lovely! How are you, Paul? <laughs> Good man, Paul. Yeah. Um. Yeah. How do we solve it? How do we? How do we uh, address this? Well, well, it's not even like how do we solve it or address it. It's like there, there's an issue out there anyway for able-bodied people, and I'm yeah. not looking to the answer to, to be solely on. The disabled, but I want you to include an answer that involves both able-bodied people and, say, wheelchair users, disabled people who can't. Who, who, the, the houses aren't the accessible houses aren't being built. My basketball coach bought a house two years ago in Leopardstown, two-story house. Him and his wife are both working. They have a three-year-old daughter, and they couldn't afford a stairlift. They had to be earning less than twenty-one thousand euro a year in order to avail of a grant for a stairlift. So they event, that, that house didn't work out for them because he's in his mid-40s and he found himself crawling up and down the stairs to get to bed or to get to the toilet. Yeah, yeah. He kept the wheelchair at the top of the stairs. I mean, like, it's 2022, like. Yeah, it's, well, that's incredible. I mean, okay, there's a specific thing there around disability generally, which is, uh, I think this, UNCRPD thing, and the, the government ratified it 10 years after it said it was going to. It had to be four. But they didn't well, ratify the option, though. They didn't ratify that's the, the option. That's exactly the point I was going to make, Graham. They didn't Sorry. ratify the optional protocol, uh, which would actually make it legally binding, and so that people could hold them to account, legally to account, for not actually making equality a reality. And that, you know, that. That's deliberate, you know, that's deliberate because they know they would have to then put the resources into actually making equality a reality. And that would that would work its way through everything. It would work its way through transport. It would work its way through, uh, you know, employment, uh, uh, equal opportunity in terms of employment and access to employment. And it would it work its way through into housing. So these things would be rights. You wouldn't have to be, you know, and you shouldn't, it's, it's outrageous that people are sort of having to plead and beg and uh, urge or, you know, protest for these things when they should be basic human rights. Uh, and that's what we've got to get to. Um, but if you want to know why does this government resist, it's because in order to actually give people their rights and to have the sort of equality we deserve, uh, you would have to start to redistribute the wealth away from these investor types. You know, because if you're an investor, right, uh, making a place accessible, making a place affordable, making it high quality is just a cost. That's the way they see it. It's just a cost. And they're interested in profit. So they're not interested in meeting needs. They're not interested in, you know, what people actually need. They're just saying, how do we make money out of this uh, and that is the problem. In every single area, the government is dancing to people whose priority is making money and not ra not meeting the needs or vindicating the rights of people. Um, I think that's the fundamental problem we have in our society. That's, that's bonkers in the sense that, like, 
like me and you um, have spoken at those nights um, where we have parents who are carers with kids with disabilities. We have adults, people, adults with disabilities, and they all have their pain points and their issues that they, as you say, they have to fight for. Like, how does Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and now the Green Party, how, how do they think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I, I often wonder that, Graham. I scratch my head sometimes at the things they do, the decisions they make, the, you know, the votes that happen in here. You know, when they, it's like when they go in tonight and vote against our, our bill on Debenhams. Well, actually, they're afraid to vote against it because they know how, how popular Debenhams workers are, but they've deferred it for a year, right? This is after, for 10 years after Cleary's, they've done nothing. They've deferred it for a year. They just hope it go, goes away. So if they defer that for a year, the Debenham strikers would still strike for another year. And where are we at? Like? Yeah, well, that, that, that's They'll the defer point. again, will they? Yeah. And that, that's what they do with things. You know, they deferred the UNCRPD for 11 years after saying they were going, you know, yeah, yeah, we're all for signing up to the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. But then they don't actually ratify it for 11 years. And then when they do, they, get, they give themselves an opt-out, essentially, of actually implementing it uh, and that's the that is the way they operate and uh, why do they do it i think they some notion that you can't book the system or you gotta accommodate and some of them are just part of the system you know quite a lot of them i think the two major parties they are just the representatives of the system they're the representatives of the landlords they're the representatives of the big business interests uh, and you know for the public consumption they have to pretend they're there to serve the interests of everybody but in reality in my opinion they are there to serve the interests of big business the property developers the speculators uh, you know and now the cuckoos and the vultures you know they brought them in like it's not like an accident these vultures and cuckoos arrived to take control of the Irish housing market and make rents and house prices absolutely unaffordable for like 80% of the population. That's where we're at now. Whole generation of young people have no chance ever of ever owning a house and are being asked to pay rents that you would need a, like a salary of about 80,000 quid a year to pay. Right? I mean, that's where we're at. That's it's correct. madness. How long is that beeping going to go on for, Paul? Or Richie? I know, it's, I would drive you absolutely round the twist, wouldn't it? <clears throat> um, I'd, say, the I'd say another minute or so, and then it'll stop for a few minutes, and then it'll start again. What's the point of it? <laughs> it's in case we don't notice a phone. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, sorry, Graham, that must be really, no. Danny, it must be very annoying for you. No, it's, no. it's grand. It's, it's, no. I'm, I'm fascinated that it needs to go on as long as it does. Like, I, I, I get the whole thing of, like, making sure, you know, TDs are aware and everything that, you know, get to the chamber, lads, or whatever. But at the same time, it's they're not. It's, it's mad that it goes on. Is it like that in the actual doll as well? Like, in, in Leinster? Yeah, Hill? yeah. Yeah. Jesus. There we go. Stop there. Go. Stop and, now. and can you hear that very loudly there? Can you, on your end? It was in the background, but I, I could hear your answer more than... Like, yeah, it was yeah, there. Exactly. yeah, It was yeah, there. Yeah. Um, so we've kind of established that it's, uh, it's because of profit and, and stuff like that. So of the two kind of winded question here and comment, um, your like, air constituency, 
mm-hmm. of Dunleary Rat Down is quite affluent. Yes. In the last, since you ran for election, you've, you've walked it, you've romped home, uh, thankfully, with, with your votes. What, what, did, what do you think that is in terms of you getting in? So would it be okay to use the set term easy, that you got in easy? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't. I mean, vote wise, I yeah. Well, like, I, well, like, vote wise, I did that, well, but it wasn't easy. And, and, and no, it's not easy, I suppose, yeah. in the campaign trail. But yeah, like, yeah. when you go to Paddy Power and they and they give the odds, Richard Boy Barrett is always like one to fourteen or something like that. You know what I mean? But my point being that we're from an affluent area, and if I'm in work or any social setting, and I always out myself as a as a Richard Boy Barrett. Uh, number one voter. Fair play, to critic- Thanks, I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> the, the criticism is always like, "Oh, he's for the boards," and um, he's always he's always moaning, he's always protesting. Um, and another criticism when I'm kind of talking about businesses, big big tech and stuff like that, mm-hmm. in terms of non-compliance of corporation tax. Yeah. Like my the people that I'm engaged in conversation with are like. What do you want the big companies to do? Walk out and mm. and leave the jobs behind? And I'm kind of going, mate. The corporation tax is twelve and a half percent. They're not paying anything. It's zero. They're not. Pay- yeah, yeah. They're not paying one percent. Yeah, yeah. You know. So, in terms of, I suppose I'm 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 waffling in terms of a, an anecdote and 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 conversation that I've had in the past. But when you're going to affluent areas, canvassing, yeah. What is the feedback you get in terms of? I wouldn't vote for you, Richie. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, there's no doubt that the, the biggest vote, I guess, is in Ballybrack, Sally Noggin, Monkstown Farm, Ratsala. Do you know what I mean? It is working class areas. And whether you live in uh, Dunleary constituency or whether you live in, you know, I don't know, uh, Dublin Central, uh, the fact of the matter is, if you're a worker, or if you're dependent on social welfare, or if you're a pen state pensioner, uh, you get the same income. So the fact that you live in a well-off area doesn't actually make you more well-off. In fact, in some cases, it can make you less well-off because things can be more expensive in a well-off area. So uh, I think, you know, sometimes there's a caricature of Dunleary constituency, but the truth about it is uh, the housing crisis, for example, is more acute in Dunleary than almost anywhere else. Because it, like average house prices in Dublin are 390,000. Average house prices in Dunleary are 540,000. Uh, a- average rents nationally, and they're extortionately high, are about 1,500 euro a month. Uh, you, uh, average co- cost for a one bedroom in Sally Noggin at the moment, Right, is one thousand seven hundred in our area. Ah, that right, is is two thousand three hundred for two bedroom and two thousand six hundred for three bedroom. And you know, forget it if you want to try try Kalini or Donkey, right? So we are so far off the Richter scale in terms of the cost of rent and the cost of housing. Uh, so the, the housing crisis is worse, and people know that in Dunleary. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And there's very few people. I mean, okay, we've got a few rich people. But that's like that's out of the reach of the vast, vast majority of people, even people on fairly decent wages. 
you know, like Tara O'Brien was saying, for our area, do you know, they have this new affordable housing scheme, right? But now the whole idea of affordable, in my mind, is affordable according to your income, right? But they have a different affordable level depending on where you live, yeah. right? So affordable in our area is 450000 according to the government. That's affordable. They're playing fast and loose with the word affordable, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, but it's, of course it's not affordable. Do you know how much you have to be earning to be able to get a mortgage off a bank for a house of 450,000? You'd have to be earning 120,000 euro. Yeah. That's, you know, i.e., that's, that's most people forget it. How could they say no with a straight face? <laughs> it's hard to understand. I mean, the last few days we've been raising these things with Dara Bryan and I just, you know, we haven't really heard an answer. But Richie, why why aren't we asking? Why aren't we looking for a vote of no confidence in that man when he has invested in vulture funds himself? How yeah. is there a vote of no confidence not against him? Yeah, how, I think... how, in any in any other country, you'd see these politicians be sacked if they have a vested interest in a vulture fund where the vulture funds are buying up apartment blocks and buying up estates for profit, and people ten thousand people remain homeless. That's how is that allowed? Like, how is he not sacked there? How is he not reprimanded? That's just bonkers to me. It's like the 52% um, of the government are landlords. Like, yeah. like you're just after explaining the, land, uh, the, the rental prices of a, once, uh, a single bed flat in the noggin for 1600 a month. Yeah. What the <laughs> fuck? Like? Yeah. Yeah. Rent. So how yeah. are you supposed to save for a mortgage if your rent for yeah. one bedroom is sixteen hundred quid? Yeah, you can't. You just can't. It's just not possible. Like, so we are in serious know. trouble unless we address this. Now, I mean, if we built public and affordable housing on our own land, we could do it, and we could do it relatively cheap. Do you know, it can be done. Uh, but when profit comes into it. Uh, when the speculators are bidding up the price of land and the value of land the way they are by hoarding the land, that's what they do. They buy up the land banks, they get a planning permission on it, that adds to its value. Then they sit on it and wait until the prices are as high as they could possibly be, and then they might build a few. Mm. But as how, I, did we, I, how did we build so many in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? Because it, it was the state built them. The so state there was built no developer, there was no... No, there was. Man. There was, no, there was private development, but about... Between 40 and 50% uh, in any given year was built by the state. And that kept, that kept prices overall down. It dampens it down. You see, I mean, if the state is building, say, 50% of the houses, if it's building houses for, let's say, for normal rental, council houses, right, where you only pay 15% of your income, depending on what your income is, that's the way council rents work, or if it's uh, affordable and they say, you know, you, you can only pay, say, 30% of your income in a mortgage, right? And no more than that, right? So if it's, that would mean that the average house price would be about 200,000, right? That'd be manageable for people on sort of average industrial earnings or earning 40 or 50 grand or whatever, right? Uh, that'd be manageable. Uh, but and then the private developer wouldn't be able to sell it for 450,000. Because people say, why would we buy a house off you for 450000 if we can get one down the road? Because the state is building them for 200000 right? And so by building public housing and affordable housing on public land, you dampen the entire market down and you keep... So it actually benefits everybody. Even people who are not going to 
uh, apply for state-provided social and affordable housing, that even they would benefit from there being much, much more social and affordable housing. It would keep the prices and the rents down for everybody. And in fact, this is the reason why I think the government's affordable housing is actually not affordable. Because I think the developers have said to the government, geez, you can't be building affordable housing that's actually affordable. Because if you're building houses for 200,000, say, on Shangana prison site, sure, how are we going to sell uh, houses or apartments up in Cherrywood for 400 grand? That's what I, in my opinion, that's what's going on. Yeah. And because is that a cynical look at it, Rich, or is that? No, I think they're being lobbied by these people. And in, in, if you look at the, I mean, I'm really trying to ring the alarm bells about this land development agency bill that you're going through the door and it's going to be voted on in the next few weeks, right? And, and we're really trying to scream, this is like NAMA part two, except now they're going to plunder the public land bank. NAMA was about getting all that land that the, the property, private developers and speculators had and that we had to bail out, right? And then they flogged it back all to the venture funds and the cuckoo funds, 40 billion worth of it. But what the land development agency is going to do the same thing to the public land bank, right? So the land development agency will be in charge of development on all local authority owned land in the country, all HSE land, all CIE land, all, uh, you know, anything, Office of Public Works, you name it, right? So the entire public land bank and they, in this legislation, it basically empowers the minister to uh, set up uh, deals with these investment vehicles on public land and to make developments on public land designated activity companies. So whereas previously, if you were building housing on public land, council housing or even affordable housing, right, it was owned by the local authority. Uh, the land was owned and controlled and it was, you know, it, it was ours and it was supposed to serve a social purpose. If this land development agency goes through, it'll be taken out of the hands of the councils completely. We'll have no democratic control over it. And the money will be, the finance will come from these international funds and they will demand their pound of flesh. And they're looking to put, to put this through the doll. They're an absolute disgrace they are. Yeah. They're a disgrace. Oh. And then... Um, there's the bell again. There we go. There's the bell. Now. Before we let you go, we let you go now, uh, Rich. But um, thanks for all your time. We've gone over what we've been doing. But uh, we didn't get to mention the current uh, state of affairs in Palestine. Um, what, I mean, our ambassador in Israel has been summoned because our foreign affairs minister, Simon Coveney, had expressed that kids in Gaza shouldn't be be killed over this and all of a sudden our guy in Israel is summoned. So considering the Salisbury poisoning in England where there was alleged Russian involvement and we expelled the Russian ambassador because of that, um, what will it take for Ireland to take action in terms of expelling the Israeli ambassador? Yeah, do you well, think that should happen? Do you think that should hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, to be honest, I think we should have sanctions exactly the same as we had against apartheid South Africa. Uh, so I think we should break all diplomatic and economic trade links, everything with Israel, because it's it's it is the same kind of rogue state as apartheid South Africa was. And remember, that's how apartheid was brought down. And speaking of, you know, Debenhams. Like the, the antecedents of Debenhams were the South, the Dunstrikers, the uh, anti-apartheid Dunstrikers, and 
they went on strike for two years to force the Irish uh, government to introduce sanctions against apartheid South Africa. And, you know, that, uh, even Nelson Mandela credited that action of solidarity as uh, playing a very major role in the international campaign to finally bring down apartheid. Uh, so I think we have a very important role in that regard and we have a great tradition of it, you know, because Ireland, the people of Ireland are absolutely behind the people of Palestine, you know, because you know, they see the connections with our own history and uh, so that's what should happen. We should play a leading role in the struggle against the apartheid state of Israel and impose sanctions, boycott, divestment sanctions against Israel in order to force the dismantling of the apartheid racist state uh, that it is. I mean, you know, since its foundation, it's just ethnically cleansed, you know, more than a million Palestinians. There are six million Palestinians living in refugee camps in Syria and Lebanon, the most appalling conditions. They've murdered thousands of people, arbitrary detention, the annexation of territory, the demolition of homes, the eviction of people. It's just, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And, and it's going to take that kind of international uh, action. And what we've seen the last few days, just further example, you know, it's not like an isolated incident from one government. This is the nature of that state. Um, and uh, I think we have to demand its dismantling. And I think it's, by the way, it's a state that's bad for Jewish and Arab people and Palestinian people, because it's like a, a vicious form of institutionalized sectarianism and division that's bad for everybody. Um, so. You know, I look forward to the day that apartheid can be brought down like it was in South Africa and then Palestinian and Israeli, Jew and Arab, Christian and people of no religion can live in equality. In you see that happening with the, the amount of inaction over the last 10 years with these, um, you see that happening because I was talking to Danny about this last night and I would, sadly, I wouldn't be surprised in the next... Uh, 18 years or so that there will be no Palestine? Um, well, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk up now and vote while I'm talking to you. <laughs> oh, lovely. Uh, <laughs> so I think um, I think actually it's more likely than the idea of a two-state solution uh, because a two-state solution is now nearly impossible. Uh, Israel has grabbed and continues to grab all the land that was designated for the Palestinians um, in the, the so-called two-state solution. So there's almost nothing left for the Palestinians to have a state. Uh, That's what I mean, yeah. But, but actually, historic... You're gone, Rich. He must, have went, down, is... uh, he must have went down a stairwell and lost the internet. The Wi-Fi is gone, bud. <laughs> Well, hang on and see. When he comes back out from the stairs, he might reappear. Yeah. Graham? He's back? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no you're, 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 you're absolutely grand. Don't worry, man. We, we were just trying to text you to say, don't, don't sweat it, because the, the bell is tolling for you there. Okay, here you are. Here you are. No, look at this. Look at this. We're live in yeah. the convention centre. We're behind the scenes. Are you going to get in trouble for this now, Rich? No, I'd, I'd be okay. All right. <laughs> the count car, like, giving you, giving you a goof now. Say, say nothing. <laughs> we, we were just trying to finish up, Richie, on my yeah. concern that Palestine uh, won't be around in 2040. So say that again, Graham. We, <laughs> we, 
my concern is that Palestine will not be around. Uh, I and Danny had this discussion last night where I compared it to the ethnic cleansing in Yugoslavia where Slavilan Milosevic um, was done for war crimes. And I think that, do you think that's a fair comparison? To, to what's happening with the Palestinians that yes. we're talking about war crimes. Without, without a shadow of a doubt. And um, I mean, you know, international organizations have, have described uh, as war crimes what's going on in Gaza. The siege of Gaza is absolutely, it's a form of collective punishment of a people. That is a war crime by, you know, under the international definition, uh, the, uh, the indiscriminate shelling of uh civilian areas and you saw today and this has happened multiple occasions over the last number of years where missiles being fired into apartment blocks you know just residential apartment blocks indiscriminate killing that these are war crimes and they have to be held to account for it but the problem is it seems that the, the big powers the united states the european union seem supremely uninterested in actually holding to israel to account um, and if you wanted to get into the deep politics of it, I think it's because really the purpose the Israeli state always had for the big powers was to have a reliable military ally in the strategically important region of the Middle East to slap down <clears throat> movements in that region that might threaten Western control over a very important region because of all the oil, to put it you know, very crudely and simply. Uh, I think that's the role that Israel has played. Um, and they were written first and then America were very conscious of it. I mean, I, I actually was pointing out in the doll yesterday, talking about what's happening, that uh, the uh, governor general, the British governor general of uh, Jerusalem in 1936, when he was describing why they were supporting what would later become the Israeli state, <clears throat> he said, we want to create a little loyal Jewish Ulster in uh, a sea of potentially hostile Arabism. Um, so they, they actually modeled Israel on Ulster, on the plantations and on the divide and rule tactics they used between Catholic and Protestant in the North. So that was the project and it was to control the region. And I think it's still the, the, essentially the, the, the project and that's why the United States support them so unconditionally and uncritically. Well, it's, they, they support them so much that they're they brokered a deal worth $38 billion for their defense in Israel. So what, what's, what's Palestine's uh, defense bill with, with other countries? So I think the answer is probably zero. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's massive military support, but also economic trade. I mean, I think the trade between the European Union and uh, and Israel is, in fact, Europe is the biggest trading partner of Israel. Uh, and trade last year was about 41 billion euro. Um, so they, you know, there's money in it for certain interests and they, therefore they don't want to call these people to account. But what actually shows you why is if we actually imposed economic sanctions of the sort that were imposed on South Africa, we could have a huge influence. You know, we could put real pressure uh, on yeah. Israel to behave properly. Anyways, Rich, we'll love you and leave you. You're about to vote there in the doll, yeah. so in the convention centre. Uh, really appreciate your time. You're after giving us a Absolutely, little tour yeah. of the convention centre on your way there to your, to your chair. So um, we'll speak again soon, and uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, great to talk to you, Graham. as always. Danny, 
brilliant right. to talk to you. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate See, it. See you at the next Jumpers for Golf House, Rich. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. All right. Take, Take care, luck, man. Richard. All, All the best, best, man. Thank See you. See you soon. Thank you. Bye. Enjoyed that. Enjoyed that. I'm like, I make no secret of it. I don't consider myself uh, a lefty as such. I wouldn't be politically Richard Boybar's biggest fan, but but of a lot of time for him as a person, and uh, he's he, he's grown on me over the years, shall I say? Yeah, he certainly has since we first started. Now that's the second time we've had Richard on. Mm. Um, we had him on in our first year, um, and we had a good conversation. But yeah, you in our private conversations, you have I think. I think with more adult responsibility and more kind of real world experience, I think you're kind of leaning more to that way of thinking as a floating voter, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, I do mind you saying. I think, I don't think it's that. I think it's more so I trusted other politicians with my vote. Uh, they did not fulfill their end of the deal as I see it uh, social contract the, is it indeed yes uh, the Phoenix, has, has led you to county leash is it it has it has indeed yeah yeah <laughs> uh, the, the spiral in house prices that Richie was referencing in the board also had a big part to play in that uh, I, I, yeah look the the, the Gale that, that I previously would have thought like I, I agree with more of their stuff than I agree with others uh, Just to be clear, you did not vote for Miguel in the most recent general election. I, I did not, no, no. Five years previous to that. Uh, did I? I just want to make that clear. No, I think five years previous to that, I did. I think I voted that. Oh, I actually think I... Jeez, I can't even remember who I voted in 2016, wasn't it? Um, when did we start? 2015. 2015. So I think there was, I think there was a general... Oh, it might have... It might have been the general election in 2011. Where was the last time you voted Fianna Gael? I was going to say 2011. I definitely voted Fianna Gael, and I, I'm like, and I stand over my vote for Fianna Gael at that time. Um, but I think what we've seen in the last, certainly last seven years, is this emergence of a younger, more right, arrogant, uh, disgusting type of politician uh, coming to the fore in Fianna Gael, and uh, I'm just, I'm not a fan of it. I don't like it. Um, no time for Leo Varadkar. Absolutely zero time for Leo Varadkar, personally. Uh, what about Simon Harris? I've no time for Simon Harris. Uh, I've now I've very little time for... I know Owen Murphy's gone, but just he was one of the ones that I included in that kind of young, right-leaning, arrogant uh, brigade. I do have time for Simon Coveney. I do have time for Simon Coveney, to be fair. Um, but... Yeah, I just I just can't. And same when I when I look at Fianna Fáil and I look at Labour and I, I look, I think I've said it on this podcast uh, recent enough that like the, the, if if there was an election tomorrow, I would more than likely be leaning towards the Sock Dems, personally. Yeah, and I guess w- with Richie there with the interview, mm. um, I was a bit surprised to hear the Sock Dems weren't as open in negotiation for a minority left wing. And now mm. that could be, now obviously they, we don't know why, it could have been a case yeah. of realism and saying to themselves, look, we don't think this is going to be worth our while because we don't think it's going to happen. But my ideal scenario from the outcome of that general election would have been, if the votes were there, of course, um, even for profits, Sinn Féin, Social Democrats, 
and the two independents. That would have been ideal. But I, I yeah. just hope, I just hope, as a as a socialist, I hope that come the next general election, that there's less seemingly bickering on that side. Yeah, yeah. I, I look. I, I, politics will always be politics, unfortunately. And I think, uh, I think the, the problem is that people often look at point scoring as opposed to looking at needs. And there's this weird thing. There's this weird kind of. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and that's like that's like profit before needs as well, though. Yeah, yeah. I think just this weird thing as well. People almost treat it like football teams. Do you know what I mean? And once once you're a member of one club, you, you you're with that club forever, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, yeah, yeah. It's Man United, Liverpool. You know what I mean? People are no matter how bad their team is doing and how how much they look at their team and say, I I can't abide by this. They won't switch allegiances. Um, which. Look, each to their own and everything else. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer in thinking you're not the same person in your 30s as you were in your 20s, and you definitely won't be the same person in your 40s as you were in your 20s. So if you're holding the same political ideology, uh, then I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think people need to mature and need to grow and everything else, and there's no harm in looking at it and saying, I don't fully agree with what I did 10 years ago. You know? Um, yeah. What's that you saying? Think that's what... Go on, what? You think that's what's lacking in um, some government TDs in as far as you're admitting there that as a voter, I'm grown, I wouldn't vote for the same people. Not saying that you're saying it was a mistake as such, but you, I personally believe that a Fianna Fáil TDs that make mistakes, like I, I, I said it in the interview in relation to Daryl Bryan, the Minister for Housing, I mean, it's a huge conflict of interest if he has invested in budget. He has. He invested in mm. budget funds. He, he admitted. He said he lost 15,000 euro. He shouldn't be allowed to do that. Mm. He shouldn't. And people say, oh, you can invest in what he likes. No, he's a TD. He has given up his life to um, represent the people in his area and to represent the people of Ireland. As a minister for housing, but yet you he's see, investing in vulture funds. We, we, okay, but you see again, and look, right, I, I have money invested in things, but it's not me making the decision. I, I've given that money to somebody who knows better and said, I, I, I want to make a few bobs so that I have an nest egg when I'm older. Look after that for me. The difference between me doing it and him doing it is that as a TD, he has to declare that. So he, he is, didn't is, know. it came out, it came out. No, uh, well. Okay, fine, but it came out because somewhere it had to be declared. Do you know what I mean? The, the, point, the point I'm trying to make is that, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't think Dara O'Brien, the private individual, went online and said, I'm going to invest 150 squarely bobs into fucking hook, line and sinker, property agent there. Do you know what I mean? I think more than likely he had money and I, I'm completely out of the correction here because I'm fucking wildly speculating. I've no idea if this is the case, but I'm just saying I think this is the case for most people who make an investment. If somebody who allegedly knows better and knows more about investing and they're like, there's, there's a bit of savings that I have. You invest that somewhere safe for me. Yeah, I, I don't think, I could, again, yeah. I could be wrong, but I don't think Dart O'Brien went out and said, I'm going to invest in that firm. They look like the business to me. I think he probably uh, was being an opportunist because he saw that the government were investing more and were opening the country, opening the door and giving the keys 
the vulture phones and cuckoo phones. And I, I thought, I, I think he probably thought to himself, I'll get a nice return on 30,000 considering, we, you know, we all remember Michael Newman's uh, speech from Dal Aaron where he, he was welcoming these people with open arms yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in estates and apartment blocks. So, I mean, people of, of that ilk that have just a spare 30,000 to invest um, well, that's, in, these, yeah. in these vulture funds are obviously thinking I'm going to get a nice return because the state has given the keys to these but, people. But, but that's, I suppose that's the point. I mean, I, look, I, I do agree that it's, it's irregular. It's not, I don't think it's, it's, it's right necessarily, but at the same time, is there, is there a disconnect here as well in terms of, it's, it's one thing if through his political discourse and through his political knowledge, he knew a certain company could potentially benefit from yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I just found yeah. it odd. He was on Ireland AM during the week, and he's like, "I don't want vulture funds." And then the two days later, it was revealed he'd invested in vulture funds. It's like you don't want them, but you've invested them to make a profit. Is there the time where Dara O'Brien, the private citizen, and and what he does with his money is his business, or is it because now he's an elected official? He, he Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. He doesn't get that leniency that I would get, say, if. I fucking turned out to have an investment in, I don't fucking know, some podcast business that I knew was going to, I don't, I'm talking out my whole, I, I you know what I mean? I don't think it's unfair to, suge- to suggest that when you become a government minister that you should, to a certain degree, um, waive your pri- private citizenship in terms of vested interest. When you are making you're you're a stakeholder and you're a decision maker in a certain portfolio um and you can you can make decisions on that front. Like if that article didn't if that article didn't come to light in the Kildare housing estate, we wouldn't be at this point, even though vulture funds and cookie funds are 10, 11 years old. Do you know what I mean? So, so was, I mean are- in in terms of the investment, and I don't know, maybe maybe I think you're going a slightly different way here as well. And if I'm pulling it back, then tell me, I know we're done with that. But he wasn't minister for for housing at the time he made the investment. But was he? No, he wasn't. No. Was he? Was he spokes Fianna Fáil spokesperson for housing or anything like that? Do we like? I'm not sure, but I know he was a TD. Yeah, okay, not sure. But, I'm not sure what he was though. To be honest, he could, yeah, he could have but, been spokesperson. Because I mean, because I mean, would it be? And again, and, and I'm not I'm not trying to support that O'Brien, but I'm 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 supposed I'm curious and I'm trying to scratch a bit of an itch in terms of are we sometimes unduly negative towards an elected official like so was he, for example, I don't know, a Fianna Fall backbencher who, you know, was fucking spokesperson for I don't know, let's just say agriculture or let's just say sport and tourism or something like that. Like because does that make it less of a big deal that he was invested in a vulture fund than the fact that he's now involved in, in the housing portfolio? I don't really understand what you're saying. I'm saying, does it look 10 times worse because retrospectively and after the fact, after the investment, he became the, the uh, Minister for Housing than if he had never become the Minister for Housing? If he had just been... I think it does look worse. I think it does look worse. I think it looks a bit fatter, Ted. Right. Um, 
that he's become Minister for Housing and he once had an investment in vulture funds. I think it's everything what's wrong with the country. I think that vulture funds should not have been invited in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Houses, houses should not be for proper, uh, for profit. It should right. be for living, and especially when you have a housing crisis. Um, I think when you become specifically a, a minister um, and a government idea, where you now when you resign, you get a hefty pension from the day mm. that you resign, and you get in, in the last 14 months, the government TDs that are currently sitting have gone through three um, pay rises, two of which yeah. are a re, uh, reconstruction of the pay decrease during the recession. So 10 years, 11 years ago, they mm. said to themselves, uh, we're not giving, or we're dropping, uh, we're decreasing your wage. That has now gone back up. During a pandemic, it's, 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 it's I mean, I think in terms of this, what you were saying there, the private citizen, my way of thinking is that if I'm, if I'm a government TD, like, I think it's, I t- actually think it's disgraceful that TDs, uh, whether it be TDs on the opposition or TDs in government, I think the wage that they're on is enough not to apply for expenses. I don't, why did they need to, some of them are on 70, 80,000 a year. Why did they need yeah. to, like, I mean, some of the, the bills for, say, the Healy Riots um, for Ireland were, was crazy over the years. I yeah. mean, and, and my way of thinking like, is that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't need, you're on a nice wage. I'm not telling you how to, to run your money and stuff like that, but you don't, surely you can pay for your own earning or your own, your own taxis. Like, do you know what yeah. I mean? Taxis yeah. from Dal errand to, to go to a restaurant or to go to, to, to somewhere for lunch or to a hotel. Like, do, and then claim it on expenses is fucking cheap. Like. Do, you know, do you know what this conversation has reminded me of, Graham? Well, it's reminded me of exactly why we said we won't do political podcasts again. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. We leave it there. It yeah, was a great interview, with Richie. Yeah, enjoy. I, I did I enjoyed the chat with Richie. We, we're, look, lads, we're, we're oh, not really, a political podcast. We're, we're look, yeah. We, look, so we get carried away with ourselves from time to time. Uh, we're not a political podcast, and <laughs> yeah, look, it was a it was a rant, but it it is what it is. <laughs> It is what it is. Uh, you can get any of our previous podcasts on wtspod.com or you can go to any past provider. I personally use Podcast Republic, uh, being Stitcher, and just search WTSPod on any podcast provider. Annie is on Instagram and very actively so at Dan John Murray. I'm at Instagram and Twitter very actively so at Merrigan Mania. Both of us are thoroughly enjoying the WWE on A&E documentaries. The most recent one is Booker T and it has been my favourite thus far. And we might talk about that next week on the intro. But until then, clear eyes, full hearts, and loads. Good week. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs>